Hello and welcome to GovGuys, a podcast brought to you by a couple of teachers with faces for radio. I'm Mr. Crowder. And I'm Mr. Hertzler. And this episode is all about federalism. Ooh, federalism. That sounds important. Well, it is important. So let's talk about it. Okay, let's do this. When? Um, right now. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to be the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. Government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. This is the GovGuys Podcast, Episode 2, Attack of the Feds. As I mentioned before, this week is all about federalism. This is one of the most important topics we are covering in government this year. That's right. And federalism is very easily misunderstood. When you see federalism, you think perhaps fairly uh, that we're talking about the federal government. And yes, federalism does concern itself with the federal government in part. But it's important to understand that federalism refers to the sharing of power between the federal government and the state governments across the country. Yeah, and there are certain issues that are best dealt with on this federal level, and most of those powers are clearly reflected in the Constitution. You know, powers like declaring war, issuing currency, and so on and so forth are all done at the federal level because it's important to get everybody on the same page. If you remember back to when we talked about the Articles in Federation, especially when it came to currency, the U.S. was a hot mess. It was hard to trade. It was hard to make any any kind of, of money. Um the states were very individualized. So now with creating a, a common currency, it, it feels more united. And, and that's why it's important that we have this level of federal government, this, this federal power to make the country feel more unified. Absolutely. But it's important to remember that not all responsibilities are best handled at the federal level. In fact, in many cases, it's arguably better handled at the state and local levels. Things like education, welfare, and even voting, though it's controversial right now, tends to be handled at the local level uh, and deputized at the local level. The premise for that is actually going to come from the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, more specifically with the Tenth Amendment. Uh, and the Tenth Amendment says that powers that are not specifically granted to the federal government should be reserved for the states. And so the states have been given by the Tenth Amendment a lot of power uh, right off the bat, because Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution lays out all the powers of Congress, and there are many of them. But outside of the necessary and proper clause, a lot is left to interpretation at the state level. Yeah, and it's also interesting to point out, you know, with, with the Tenth Amendment, what is considered the state's sphere of influence as well. It's, that's, it's one of those things that we're going to talk about in this episode is, is, you know, what is dedicated to the states moving forward. Yeah, and, and the whole premise of the 10th the Amendment even being a thing goes back to what we were talking about last episode with disagreements between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. So just to quickly recap that, Federalists are people who are supportive of the Constitution. They are people who want to see a strong national government become our form of government because, again, at this time, Articles Confederation in place. Central government is very weak. They can't do a whole lot. It's all up to the states. They're kind of more or less on their own, for better or for worse. The new U.S. Constitution that's put into place is meant to make the states fall under the supremacy 
of the federal government. Uh, and so for the first time, you have this really precarious situation of how much power do you grant the federal government? How much is too much? How much is too little? I like to think of it like that Goldilocks zone. You know, ideally, it's kind of that just right region, you know, where the federal government has enough power to do its job, but the state governments don't feel like they're being, you know, quote unquote, trampled on. Yeah, and you see that in our in our historical writings that you have to take a look at in this class because you have two two documents that look at this. One of them being Brutus One, which, as Crowder mentioned, is the the one of the two sides that we're talking about being the anti-federalist view. They believe that the federal government is too big and that they they need to take away a lot of those rights. And 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 Brutus One uh, talks about you know taking away or stripping away some of the powers from the federal government. And then you have the Federalist 10, which I'll let Crowder talk about. Yeah, so just to quickly recap on, on Brutus 1, I mean, Brutus 1 is written in the time period by an anti-Federalist who is very fearful of an incredibly strong federal government. He sees it as a return to the tyranny that England had in place when we were just a colony. All these ideas of taking state power and passing it on to one federal central power is something that many anti-federalists and honestly many people today are are still pretty wary of. Yeah. It's 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 that that fear of kings and we don't like kings. So in terms of Federalist 10, Federalist 10 is written by James Madison. And if there's one thing to make sure you remember about Federalist 10, it's the F word. That F word is factions. Ooh, and I left you all hanging there for a minute. Yeah. That was that was a moment of uh we, we were we were Sheer fearing terror. fearing for the worst there. Uh just like a lot of people are in fear of factions. Um and James Madison argues that the larger the federal government, it's easier to keep the factions, which are inevitable, from gaining too much power and, and kind of keep them in line of it. It, it helps um, keep the power, you know, out of the hands of of one select group. Yeah, and we do need to take a quick moment to just talk about factions. I mean, if you never look up the word, you don't know what it means. Factions are just divisions within the country, subgroups within the country that are all united based on some type of common idea or common theme. And inevitably, people are going to argue with one another. People are going to disagree with one another. And it is a human nature type thing that people will group together with people who are similar to them, who have similar ideas with them. The inevitability of factions, as James Madison put it, bared a real strong risk to this fragile country that we are trying to put together. And so, as Hertzler said... The important part, well, I guess James Madison said it. Sorry, buddy. But the important part <laughs> the important part is that you have a strong national government to keep these factions from getting out of hand and you know fighting one another or battling one another and getting to the point where you don't have a country anymore because you have all these different groups constantly going at it. Also a little bit of foreshadowing in, in history and American history with factions fighting one another and trying to divide the country. Uh, speaking of history, it's important to talk about like the, the way federalism has changed over time, how it started, you know, it's, it's early, early days in, in this new government and how it's adapted over time throughout history. 
Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about how federalism has evolved over time. We really like to think of the first 150 years of the country, roughly, with a slight anomaly uh, in the Civil War period as this time period of what's known as dual federalism, in which if you're a citizen of the country, you see a very clear divide between the duties and responsibilities of the federal government versus the duties and responsibilities of the state government. If you were to just take a quick intersection of your life on any given day, you would see some things that are clearly done solely by the federal government and vice versa. But that changes over time. That's going to change during the Roosevelt administration in the 1930s. So what ends up happening with the dual federalism, this, this distinct line, you, you see um, the Great Depression happen in the 20s and 30s of America. And, and you see Roosevelt take away this idea of dual federalism and puts this idea of cooperative federalism, where instead of having distinct boundaries where the states and the federal government live, now they both kind of have this control of these ideas. So especially with his New Deal programs, he created them to be run by the federal government but to be enforced by the state government. So he takes a lot of the power of enforcing laws and, and control from the federal government and gives it to the states because he's having such a problem with, with, with the Great Depression throughout the United States. He tries to give the states their own ability to fix the problems in their, their areas. So you really start to see this, this cooperation of federal government, state governments working together uh, to, to fix problems. Yeah, and you have to realize in the context of things that the Great Depression is a really terrible time in U.S. history from an economic, from a social standpoint. We look at unemployment, for example, and how bad unemployment might be at any given time. Like back in 2008, for example, you know, it peaked just under around 10 percent, if I'm remembering correctly. Back during the Great Depression, you know, you're talking about unemployment levels at 25 percent. Uh, you know, the quarter of people in the country who were out looking for a job were not able to find one. There were a bunch of people who are really just destitute, moving around from place to place, looking for work in these really just kind of desperate situations. And so in this time of crisis, Roosevelt proposes these New Deal programs, gives a lot of flexibility to the states for how to implement a lot of these New Deal programs to get people back to work to get the economy running again. Uh, and so, again, just looking at the intersection of how federal government is involved in everyone's lives, it's a little bit more murky than it used to be. Uh, it, there is a very famous comparison of dual federalism to like a layer cake, where you have very clear divisions from one federal government to the state governments. You know, during starting with the Roosevelt administration in the 1930s, you know, this cake becomes a lot more marbled in that at any given time, certain programs are being pushed at the federal level, but implemented at the state level. There's a lot more of a shared responsibility. Yeah, yeah. And that shared responsibility comes to an end with our next time period jump um, when we get into the 1950s, 60s, 70s with, with Lyndon B. Johnson changing the ideas once again um, with his great society reforms where he starts to take a lot of that that cooperation away. Um, and again, in context of history, you got to look at, at what was going on 
in that time period of why he was wanting to to rein a lot of the power back in to the federal government. So you can almost say this is dual federalism part two, but it's going to be known as creative federalism. Johnson is going to rein back in because uh, if you know, we, we talked or Crowder talked about, you know, with the 10th Amendment, some of the things that the states control is voting rights. Well, a lot of the states are denying certain people the right to vote. So you have this law, the Voting Rights Act created where the states are like, well, we don't have to listen to you because it's our job to control, you know, voting in our state. But he says, no, you, you have to listen to the federal government. We are giving these rights to these people. So you have to listen to us. So he kind of reins back the states in uh, to listen to the federal government. So, yeah, during both the Roosevelt administration and the Lyndon B. Johnson administration, you would have arguably a, a huge expansion of federal power when compared to state power. And again, many would argue that this was absolutely warranted and necessary at the time because for many states in, in the context of the civil rights era, Johnson's coming into power almost a decade after the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which, you know, in theory, on paper, uh, desegregates public schools at minimum, uh, many would interpret to be public facilities. Uh, and, you know, a decade later, states hadn't really budged on this. The Supreme Court in the Brown versus Board of Education decision took a much more of a gradualist approach. They said, this is something that needs to be done. We're not really going to give you a time frame on this. So many states, uh, you know, across the country, but largely in the South and Southeast, uh, really dragged their feet when it came to implementing policies that would desegregate public facilities, expand voting access to African-Americans. Uh, you know, there were some horrible uh, restrictive rules put in place by the Jim Crow laws. Uh, things like the grandfather clause, which said, yeah, sure, you can vote assuming that your grandfather was able to vote. And this is put in place as early as the 1880s when you have basically no African-Americans who had a grandparent who would have been able to vote. Or you have the poll tax, which says, you know, in order to vote, you have to pay a certain amount of money, which disproportionately affects uh, poor people, but especially if you're talking about in the context when it's put in place in the 1880s, 1890s, you know, almost overwhelmingly that's going to cover African-Americans within these states that are putting these rules in place. Uh, you're going to have literacy tests, which can be given at random, uh, basically uh, almost like a civics test that I would probably guess that many Americans wouldn't be able to pass uh, if you gave it today. Uh, you know, really oftentimes difficult questions about the nature of government, the nature of the, the country and things like that. Just a couple of examples of ways that African-Americans were disenfranchised. And so when Johnson is hearing and seeing all this stuff, and there is a lot of pressure put on him as well uh, by members of the African-American community, most notably Martin Luther King, you know, he signs the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which is greatly going to expand the rights of African-Americans within the country, especially in regards to voting. And also there's there's other policies that he created as well, not that also include things that normally is dedicated to the states is the you know, welfare acts. You, you had Medicare and Medicaid created 
uh, during this time period that was really enforced by the federal government, especially considering the fact that Medicare is really connected with, with Social Security because it's for the elderly after they retire from, from work. And while we're on that note, uh, Social Security was a New Deal program. Just yeah. to bring that up. So, you know, a lot of people at the time said, oh, Social Security is is government overreach and it's government going way too far and this, that and the other. And, you know, it did represent an expansion of, uh, of federal government power. Uh, and the same thing happens, you know, some 30 years later during the LBJ administration with the beginnings of Medicare and Medicaid. During those, you know, 30 years or so, the the power of the federal government greatly expands in regards to the balance between them and state governments. But starting in the late 1980s, you start to see a little bit of a step backwards. And what's that all about? I like to talk about it when we're talking about federalism, how the pendulum will swing. And, and, and the pendulum is going to swing back the other direction starting in the 1980s. And you're going to start to see a, a movement of, of de-evolution of, of federal government power, especially during the Reagan years um, in the 80s. And the federal government is going to start to, again, give more power back to the states, especially economic power. Through, you know, we just went through the 70s where we we're going uh, through a period of inflation um, and they wanted to get the, the economy going back in a better direction. Um, so again, you know, in the 80s um, and say early 90s, um, you start to see a, 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 the de-evolution of the federal government again as, as the states get a lot more power back uh, from from the Reagan administration. Yeah, and it's still important to understand that the federal government is you know, much larger proportionally in power than the states are at this point, especially if you compare it back to you know, right after the U.S. Constitution is created. But this Reagan-era movement to try to return power back to the states certainly did kind of loosen the leash a little bit, so to speak, uh, and allow states to have a lot more of individual powers and self-determination and things of that sort. But again, as you mentioned, in the 1980s, you know, coming out of inflation, which lasted into the early 80s, you kind of returned to a period where things were relatively calm, things were relatively stable. There wasn't a huge crisis that the government was you know, perhaps responding to. And so I would argue that once you get through the 1990s and right into 2001, you see a shift once again. Under the George W. Bush administration, uh, the September 11th attacks take place. And there is a lot of swift legislation that's passed, anti-terrorism bills, you name it, that I would argue greatly strengthen the power of the national government once again, and I think that that has continued to a large degree, especially when you consider uh, their ability to wage war or their ability to, you know, can take part in conflict. I guess we're not officially in a state of war and haven't been since World War II. But, you know, if you're thinking about drone technology and things of that sort and the power of the federal government, it's, it's still greatly expanded following, you know, the September 11th attacks. And you, and you mentioned that it shows a trend um, throughout history that federal government superiority almost really rears its head during times of crisis. You know, each each time the federal government changes its its hold, you, you see some kind of event 
that mirrors that change. For example, we talked about the civil rights movement was the reason why you see Lyndon B. Johnson take a lot of control back to the federal government. With George W. Bush, it's the terrorist attacks that 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 he sees the panic and he's like, we we got to make sure that the that we can calm society down and takes a lot of that control back. Uh, so so yeah, um, you do. It's it is interesting how in times of panic, you know, people aren't too too you know, worried about federal government control because it, it almost makes them feel comfortable. I, I think it's important to acknowledge that people are perhaps okay with the government taking reins in times of crises because of the fact that the government has many more resources at their disposal economically uh, in terms of dispatching agents, in terms of, you know, this, that, or the other. An area in which, you know, federalism isn't seen as perhaps controversial is something like a hurricane response, you know, or natural disaster response with FEMA. And FEMA has its own issues and people argue about that. But most people tend to agree that in times of natural disaster, it is significantly more helpful to have the federal government take the reins for some of that emergency response. Yeah, and, it's, and you know, we talk about crisis, even when Roosevelt created the New Deal programs and it looks like the federal government is loosening its power, the federal government still has its hands on a lot of, of the response to the Great Depression. If it wasn't for the federal government, these New Deal programs wouldn't have been funded um, to the states to then get the relief where it needed to go. You know, it's almost like, you you kind of think that the federal government is kind of like a coach in uh, a football game and all these states are out there trying to do their best. But sometimes it takes a good amount of coordination coming from like the federal government to help get everyone, as, as you said earlier, on the same page. Yeah. So listen to your coaches, listen to your <laughs> teachers. Yes. We're here to help you. Yes. We occasionally make it a pain, but that's our job. So, so yes. So when it comes to fund, we, we mentioned that the other fun F word and that's uh, funding, especially when it comes to the new deal programs, because uh, even though we were in debt, you know, things were struggling, the new deal programs weren't cheap. So, so let's talk a little bit about the federal government's able to get the states to do what they want them to do with, with funding. Well, some magical buzzwords coming in here with grants and mandates. So the federal government, as we mentioned before, is largely in charge of, of dispersing federal money to states to help out with implementing various programs like New Deal programs or Great Society programs, as we talked about historically. But the important thing to remember is not all the money given out is just without stipulation. Right. And and we have two types of, of ways that the federal government gives money to the states in the form of grants. Um, you know, we have the categorical grant, which is money given to the states, but the states have to use that money for a specific purpose. They don't get their strings attached. They have to show the federal government that they know what the situation is and that they're going to use that money for what they want. So if they give the money for infrastructure, schools, you know, you have to use it to, to rebuild roads. Um, you have to do, use it to, to build new school buildings if, if they feel like their schools are overcrowded build new school buildings throughout the state. So, so there's some reason why they're giving you that money and you better use that money for that reason. Yeah, there, there absolutely are stipulations attached to categorical grants. 
the government's not just giving you money out of the kindness of their heart. The federal government is giving money states for specific projects. If you're going to use infrastructure money and all of a sudden you're using it to, uh, oh, I don't know, start oil drilling or something like that, you know, and it was specifically meant to like build a bridge, uh, you're going to get in trouble real quick. Hertzler, there's a really good example of uh, states kind of getting in trouble for not living up to their uh, mandates. And and can you tell us about that real quick? So, yeah. So one of my favorite anecdotal stories to talk about, especially in class, um, is, you know, there never really was a, a set drinking age in the U.S. Um, and it was really assigned to the states to decide what the drinking age would be. And, and most of them centered around the age of 18. So, so as long as you were the you know 18 years of old age, you could drink all you wanted to. Well, the federal government said, you know what, we really should raise the drinking age, but we don't want to enforce it. So they told all the states that if you raise your drinking age to 21, you would continue to get federal highway funds. Some states resisted. The state of Louisiana, last, I think it was about. It was eight to 10 years that they went without federal highway funds before they finally changed um, the drinking age to 21. So, so yeah, so there are consequences for not, you know, following the federal government's guidelines when it comes to the money that they're, or what they want you to do with their rules. But that's not a grant. That was a mandate, but it's still the same idea. They're not giving you the money because you're not, you're not playing ball. And I think it's important to acknowledge that in some cases, states have, the economic capability to resist government mandates. Like I'm thinking of not necessarily a specific situation, but California, for example, just because of the size of its economy might do a much better job at resisting certain federal mandates versus uh, let's say Louisiana, as you just mentioned. And Hertzler, so we talked about categorical grants. Again, these are not coming just, just free money. Categorical grants have some type of mandate, some type of requirement, some stipulation attached to them. You have to spend it on a certain thing. If you were a state, you can't, ooh, that was good. So you guys can't see this, but Hertzler literally just transformed into a state. It was it was amazing. So Hertzler, you are now a state. Just please tell me I'm not New Jersey. <laughs> oh, that's, that was the first one I went toward. I'm sorry. If Hertz, okay, question for the audience. If Hertzler were a state, which state would he be? Uh, okay. I'd have to be one of those Northwest states. Oh, okay. Montana. Back to the, the line of questioning. If you were a state, what type of money from the government would you want to have? Well, I would want a block grant because block grants is basically free money from the federal government where they're giving me money and I get to decide what I want to do with it. If I, if I want, if I needed to build a road, I could build a road. If I needed to build more schools, I could build more schools. So it, it, it has, I have more options of what I can do with that money. If I want to set that money away for a rainy day, I can do that as well. There's no stipulation of what I have to do with that money. All right. It's kind of like when you're a kid and your mom leaves you $20 bills on the refrigerator and is like, buy you some dinner. I'm like, no, I'm going to keep that 20 bucks for another day. I'll go without dinner tonight. That's that's basically what the states are doing. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, 
in some cases, the money is completely up for the discretion of the states. There sometimes are a few strings attached to it, but nowhere near as bad as if you were talking about a categorical grant, which has to be used for a specific thing. Block grants, states are given a lot of discretion with how they use the money. And a really good recent example of this was during... Uh, COVID actually, the COVID pandemic, there was a creation of community development block grant programs. Uh, and in these programs, states could apply for money from the federal government to be able to take part in some type of community development that they could argue would assist the state. Uh, and so all across the country, states are using some of this COVID block grant money for a variety of things like, uh, you know, education. Uh, there were cases of people using it for roads, people using it for uh, prisons. Uh, so like just a very wide range of how block grant money was used during this this COVID era that we're just getting out of now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, states like to think that the federal government, you know, quoting one of our founding fathers, Taylor Swift, that the federal government, you know, why do you got to be so mean federal government? Um you know, let us do what we feel is right for our own state. That that's all. It kind of goes back to that Articles of Confederation era of we know what's best for our state. We 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 we're going to use the money correctly because we know what's going on in our borders. The author of Brutus would agree with you one wholeheartedly. There is an there is an old saying that all politics is local, and local government is sometimes the best to respond to crises because they know their constituents, they know their individual situations. And so it could be argued that block grants are more effective because it's not a one size fits all program. Issues that California is dealing with might be very different from issues that North Carolina is dealing with. Uh, and so giving specific money for you know, something that helps California doesn't necessarily help North Carolina. Yeah, yeah, correct. Um, so let's talk some more about, you know, other examples of, of federalism throughout. Uh, let's go with this one just because we've talked about it already in the terms of the civil rights era. But let's talk about voting a little bit because that's one of those those issues in federalism that that you see pop up all the time, especially in the last election that we had. Because a lot of people don't know states control the voting process in their states, and every state has a different process. Um, my favorite thing to talk about, especially in class, is like the primaries, right? How, you know, North Carolina, we have basically a normal vote for our primaries. You go to the polls like you do on election day, but other states, you have a caucus. So it's interesting how something as simple as voting is, is so different from state to state and can sometimes cause some controversy. Yeah, the, the Iowa caucus is kind of weird. Like it it's it's kind of like an icebreaker game where they're <laughs> where they're like, if you agree with this person, go stand in that corner. And like all these people standing around a gymnasium or a civic center, uh, they just kind of can't, you know, like, oh, there are 30 people standing in Mr. Hertzer's corner. So he has 30 votes out of this caucus. And Mr. Crowder has 27 standing in this corner. So he gets 27 votes. And it's a it's Dan a much Roseman has a hundred people in his corner, so freaking Roseman. <laughs> so yeah, it's this it's this very different uh, system where you know it's it's similar in that like yeah everyone votes, everyone kind of chooses their candidate, um, 
but it's it's more of a head count versus like you go into a booth and with a ballot and you choose your your person or you know your your picks for each of these different offices i couldn't Uh, imagine playing four corners as an adult could you right um i'd be scared i'd go to the wrong corner (laughs) yeah i feel like there's this kid would come out with a one of those giant dodgeballs and like start throwing them at people and you have to move to a different candidate. And they're like, they're, <laughs> they're out, they're out. You have to move to somebody else, which, which is actually not too far from the truth, but yeah. let's leave that up to the imagination for later. Yeah. Um, other things regarding voting that can create some issues as people move from one state to the other is the rules for voting are different from state to state. Not in terms of who's eligible and things like that. That's something where the federal government has stepped in before, and we talked about that a little bit. Yeah, we um, have amendments and other other acts that, that decide that. How many days of early voting does your state offer? Does it offer early voting at all? When are the polls open? How late? Uh, you know, absentee ballots are a big issue, and that's something a lot of people have been confused about or, you know, maybe been ignorant for lack of a better way of saying in the last couple of election cycles, uh, things like you have to have a witness sign your absentee ballot. And so when you're talking about COVID, for example, a lot of people didn't want to like knock on a neighbor's door to be a witness because like, you know, I I don't want to put them at risk or I don't want to, you know, potentially get COVID from somebody, you know, and, and not everyone knows that you have to get a witness signature or write the, you know, write the date. And if it's not filled out 100% of the way, your vote may not count. It depends on the state. And another example of just how elections are different as well is the 2000 election. Um, I know a lot of our listeners probably don't remember this because you know, if you're a student of ours, you, you weren't alive at the you moment. You weren't alive yet. This, yeah. this this hurts me a little bit. I've just artificially aged about 20 years, but that's okay. Yeah. So you had the incidents in Florida with the, the hanging chat ballots. Um, it sounds like a band, but it's not even, it's not, it's not just a bunch of dudes calling the hanging chads. It was a very real issue. The ballot basically... So the voting systems completely are different from state to state too. And in 2000 in Florida, you basically had like, I don't know how to best describe it, but basically like an ice pick. Yeah, it was a punch. It was a punch card. It, it, was, where you had a, it was a punch <laughs> card where you basically had like a metal pencil type thing that you would put into a hole to punch out which candidate you wanted to vote for. And in many cases, the little perforated circle did not completely drop off the ballot so you had hundreds of ballots thousands of ballots i don't i don't want to get into that issue but <laughs> you, you had a lot of ballots that were miscounted by machine uh and then had to be hand counted by people and they had to determine whether or not you intended to vote for one person or another person by how much that perforated disc had <laughs> detached from the ballot it was it was wild there, I think there was also a ballot where the way the ballot was set up, like yeah. you, you pick. Everybody thought that the 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 spot that you chose was beside the name, but yeah. you actually put put the circle below them. So a lot of people misvoted because this is the layout of the ballot. Yeah. Um, so so Florida, freaking Florida, and Florida I'm, was a mess in two thousand. 
I, I remember hearing that if you didn't put the ballot in the machine 100% correctly, you might have also chosen the wrong person, <laughs> you know, like, so voting. Yeah, lean so, your head to the left, stand yeah, on one foot. Yeah, just um, the the way in which people vote from state to state is a little bit different. And I think it's much closer to standardized now in that most people use digital machines with a paper trail, but that's not common everywhere. I think, uh, oh man, I can't remember exactly what the name of it is, but I think there's a place they always get to vote first. It's this weird ceremonial thing where it's this town of like 20 people and they get to go like vote first. And I think they vote by hand or something. That sounds fun. I kind of want to do that. It's like, it's like Iowa, the Iowa caucuses get to be first and it's always just this weird event. And you're like, well, you say only there's only like towns of 20 in Iowa or something. It's just corn and 20 people. I make note viewer. I refused to do the corn kid. (laughs) I very, I very easily could have done that, but I did not. You should be very proud of me. It's gone. Sorry. Dang it. Dang it. (laughs) It's also, uh, you know, Iowa is also heaven because of Kevin Costner and and baseball. Oh yeah. No, that that's a field of dreams reference. Uh, Hertzler does not have a man crush on Kevin Costner. It's okay if he did though. Kevin Costner seems to be a cool guy, but outside of that, if we were to get back to uh, issues with voting, uh, you know, it, it does vary widely from state to state. And this is an area where I feel like people are going to start asking for more standardization from the government, especially when you get into issues of like absentee ballots, for example, because some states, you have to have your absentee ballot returned by election day. And if it comes the day after, just because the mail was slow, you know, that's that's on you and your vote is no longer valid. But in some places, they might take it up to it depends state to state, but it might be as late as five days after or a week after to allow for the mail to, you know, be slow if it, if that's the case. And so when you had issues with states like Pennsylvania, for example, you know, Trump had a, a lead early on in the state, but a lot of votes were counted as they came in. And there was a whole issue of whether or not those votes should count or not. And according to Pennsylvania law, they absolutely were counted because that's how the law was written. And so, again, a lot of people perhaps might start asking for a little bit more standardization across the country regarding, you know, rules for voting and how voting is done just because you have so 50 different variations. Yeah, you have 50 different variations. That's exactly what we're getting at there. Another hot topic in federalism, and I don't want to get super duper controversial here, but this is a very controversial issue as it relates to federalism. And so we're looking at it in that context and and we're looking at marijuana usage. You know, you have many states across the country that have decriminalized marijuana, meaning that if you have under a certain amount, you're not going to get like tossed in jail or anything like that. Uh, you might just get a warning or a citation or or maybe even nothing. Just go about your business. Slap on the wrist. Don't do it again. Yeah, absolutely. And in some states, you know, it is completely legal. And in some states, it's still, it's still uh, against the law. Uh, and at the federal level, it's still against the law. And so when it comes to 
marijuana usage, I do think that this is going to be a, a, a big Supreme Court issue at some point as you've got in the Constitution to the United States, like the full faith and credit clause, or maybe even you could use the contracts clause in this case. If one state allows you to buy marijuana and you were to go to another state, you know, is it illegal for you to have it there? Well, who knows? You were allowed to buy it in one state, but you're maybe not allowed to possess it in another state. Uh, and I think that we're potentially going to have an issue where, you know, you have a lawsuit from somebody who bought it across state lines or something of that sort due to issues like, oh, man, this could get into a bunch of things. Uh, even the Commerce Clause, really, um, you know, if it's not meant to be interstate, but it becomes like I'm getting supporters, I'm getting, you know, uh, customers from out of state, it does start to kind of look that way. And, and you know, I almost compare this to an historical example because we ha have had this in the past when it was not not so much state to state basis, but you um, have this county to county basis, um, especially in North Carolina. And, it, you know, um, the end of prohibition is, is a great example of this, because just because prohibition ended in the United States with the 21st Amendment, there was a lot of areas that still wanted to keep alcohol out of their counties um, where I'm from, Alexander County. We were a dry county up until 2016. You could only buy alcohol in the city limits. Um, if you wanted it, you had to go to the surrounding counties. Um, and, and some of the arguments were, you know, think about all the tax revenue that Alexander County was losing. So we do have historical examples of this. Um, and it took a, you know, a vote of the county to get it to, to where Alexander is no longer a dry county. But it, it's just interesting to note, like you said, um, it wasn't illegal to take alcohol from one county to another county. Um, that's, I think you're right where the big issue lies is in some states it's it's illegal. Um, other states it isn't illegal to, to have. So so finding that balance of, you know, and you're right, we'll probably get a Supreme Court case at some point or we'll probably get an amendment at some point. You never know. We might even go that route at some, uh, you know, further down the line. Uh, so it's just interesting to think about, you know, will it follow that same example? And even if we're getting out of the state to state issue, there's a federal issue. You know, we're talking about the supremacy clause. The supremacy clause says that at the end of the day, if there are two contradictory laws regarding anything, you know, the law in the books for the federal government is the law of the land. And that's the one that should be supported, the one that should be propped out and the the state law, whatever it might be that conflicted is out you know and and so how this applies to things like you know marijuana is you know if it's illegal on the federal level or decriminalized on the federal level uh as as it currently is what do you do in the case of these big businesses that have made a lot of money uh selling it legally in the states over the last several years and one of the issues that comes up with this is Federal banks, actually, federal banks are not allowed to take money from dispensaries uh, within the state of like Colorado, for example, because the FDIC insures these federal banks. And so they can't use banks that are supported and propped up by the federal government 
uh, uh, for conducting business. It's kind of an interesting hang up for them. They seem to be doing well from an economic standpoint as a business, but you know, that, that is a major hiccup if you're not able to use federal banks. Yeah. And a lot of banks are controlled by the FDIC. So, and so, you know, this balance of how much power is too much power for the federal government or how much power is too much power for the state government is a debate that's going to go on and on. You know, it's been there since the very beginning with the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists or even, heck, the uh, Articles of Confederation. You know, how much power is too much to give to a federal government before it gets to the point of, like, a tyranny? Yeah, 1776, I feel like this debate was happening um, because you you just get rid of your king and you're, you don't want to fall back into it. You want your freedoms. And, and, and I always talk that that's a great point as I always say that is, you know, if you don't understand the division between the anti-federalists and the federalists, then you are going to be lost through the whole understanding of American government. Yeah. And it's important to understand that these issues and these divisions between people within the country are still very much alive today. As I mentioned on the last podcast, you may have two people looking at the exact same situation and one would say, uh, I don't want this much federal government in my daily life. And the next person over would say, I think we need more federal government in my daily life. And so, you know, federalism and the balance between state and federal power is a delicate balance that is ever changing. And I think that's why we have those pendulum swings because we don't, we, we don't realize how much we, we swing one way and we, we try to overcorrect sometimes and we get going back the other direction. Thank you very much to all who have listened so far. We're going to try to be a bit more uh, quick getting the next few episodes out. If you tune in next time, we're going to be talking about uh, the first of our three-part series, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, talking about the three branches of government. So a little bit of a message from us. Make sure you you like and subscribe. Wait, we don't have we don't have a YouTube, but uh, subscribe to the podcast. Yeah. Um, like our Instagram. We put some fun stuff up there for yeah. our students. Our our TikToks are are funny, but they're also informational. Yeah. So so make sure you're paying attention to those. We are on most of the social medias that the kids use these days. We haven't made a Snapchat filter yet, but maybe when Hertz, we just got to take the Hertzler beard and just like <laughs> wear, wear Hertzler's impressive beard and you can take a picture. Um, you know, if you haven't seen his photo from this school year, it is quite impressive. If the man went back in time, he'd be promoted to a Civil War general immediately. Um, and also, if you are, you know, in your 40s, no, we do not have a MySpace. So yes. you'll have to get one of the newer social medias. Darn. Yeah. And if we did a B reel, it would mostly be pictures of us like sitting in front of a, you know, bunch of papers to grade. So like, you know, not that fun. See you guys next time. Take care.